HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to HRN on Tour at our first annual Catskills Field Day. I'm Amy Halloran, and today we are broadcasting live from Bovina, New York. We're in the midst of a fun-filled weekend featuring mushroom foraging led by Catskill Fungi, a hog butchery demo and dinner at Brushland, and a live podcast day next to a picnic, next to a stream, and tomorrow a pancake breakfast that I will be making with farmer ground flour at Putt-Putt Van Winkle. You can listen to all of today's interviews on our podcast, Heritage Radio Network on Tour. Find it on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. So, I'm Amy Halloran, otherwise known as the Flower Ambassador, because I'm wildly devoted to all flower products, especially pancakes and bread. And I discovered this fabulous museum in Kingston that is maybe the only bakery museum, aside from the very big baking museum that I think is in Kansas, 
um, in Kingston, New York, the Rarer Center. So I feel very excited to be here today with Sarah. Hello. Welcome. Sarah, will you introduce yourself and this Wild Museum project? Absolutely. So my name is Sarah Litvin, and I am the executive director of the Rear Center for Immigrant Culture and History, which is a new museum and cultural center in a historic bakery in Kingston, New York, dedicated to the immigrant stories of the Hudson Valley past and present. And we really use the historic space of the bakery and the story of the Rear family, a family of Jewish immigrants who owned and operated it and lived upstairs for nearly a century, we use those stories to bring out themes that can connect all of us, culture, community, work, and bread. And we do programming and tours um, all around those themes. And it's not limited to bread at all. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit more about the beyond bread and we'll circle back to bread. Sure. So, well, I guess I could start with sort of how we came to be. Um, the Rear family, as I mentioned, lived and worked in this place uh, up until, well, they closed the bakery in 1980 because they really couldn't keep functioning anymore. Um, and up until that point, this was the place to be on Sunday mornings in the Rondette neighborhood of Kingston. It was a diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural, working-class community. And uh, it was a Jewish-owned bakery, so it was open on Sundays. And after church, everybody would come by and get their rolls. On Wednesdays, rye bread was delivered all over the city of Kingston. Fridays, challah bread. Um, and folks would come in in the afternoons to get bread the rest of the week as well. But by the 1980s, the family just couldn't keep it up anymore. And so they closed, they retired upstairs. And in 2004, 2002 rather, a group of folks interested in the Jewish history of the Rondout neighborhood of Kingston looked in the window and saw basically a time capsule and said, oh my goodness, there has been so much change in this neighborhood. First, because of the urban renewal that tore half of it down in the 60s, and then just new businesses coming in and people, you know, redeveloping these, these historic buildings. They said, we got to keep our, we got to get our hands on this and we have to preserve this site. And that is how the Rear Center was born. It was an all-volunteer preservation project at the beginning. And this group of amazing folks really were able to um, stabilize, at least start the process of stabilizing the structures. And they came up with this idea of having it dedicated to immigrant and multicultural stories. So they would have this big uh, multicultural festival annually offsite and bring together dance troops from all over the Hudson Valley and performing groups. Um, but they weren't yet able to get the site itself open to the public. And it's only in 2018 that we opened the site to the public for the first time and began the process of um, really developing into our own separate museum and cultural center. That's great, which is how I began intersecting. I, um, I found you on Instagram and some post about the bakery, and I just love, uh, love knowing that this bakery that started in 1908, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. So 1908 to 1980, this bakery lasted through so many changes in the city of Kingston, but also through our migration to factory bread. Mm -hmm. um, 1920 is where factory bread really began to have a, a, a good foothold and to see a small bakery 
last and adapt throughout time is is really amazing. Well, and that's been one of the really fascinating pieces of kind of discovery. People loved this bread. Literally, yesterday I was in our gallery space. Now we've converted the former hayloft that was used for the delivery horses back in the day is now a gallery dedicated to immigrant stories. And a woman came in and um, was telling me just how delicious this was and remembering from her childhood. And and it really was just that. It, it was so good. But what was interesting to me, kind of to your point, is as we started changing the time capsule, right, looking through the things that the Rear family left behind, whether it was car parts or scraps of paper, we found rings on the shelves that were kind of showing where canned goods had been kept year after year after year. And that really got me thinking along the same lines that you're saying about this relationship between foods, breads that were this European Jewish recipe that was brought here alongside bags of potato chips and cans, canned goods and how they were able to kind of shift and adapt in little ways their business model over the years. Right. And what's interesting on the tours, so um, the bakery tours happen in the um, on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays through the fall. Through the end of November at 11.30 on Saturdays and Sundays, correct? And it's a great little um, opportunity to step back into 1959, (laughs) a Sunday morning in 1959. I got to be on a tour with someone who actually got bread on a bakery list. This tour is built around a list of the families and their standing orders or... um, which is such a, so you get to see the churches. Will you talk a little bit about the, um, that, that overlapping cultural, intersecting cultural component of a bunch of different Catholics coming yes. into this Jewish bakery? Well, that's part of what was so wild about our discovery, uh, you know, as we've been learning from the building itself and all the objects that the rears left behind. So, as I had mentioned, the folks who kind of quote-unquote discovered and, and started this all came from the Jewish community, and they knew the stories about the challah bread. They knew the stories about how even after the three synagogues that used to be in the Rondout neighborhood of Kingston had moved to the uptown neighborhood, the Rear family continued to walk on Sabbath on their holiday. The one day they were closed, they walked the big hill uptown, But once we got in to start looking really closely at what the objects were left behind, we found this Sunday list that you're mentioning. And this opened up an entire other set of stories about Sundays at the bakery. So there were three churches, St. Peter's, St. Mary's, and the Immaculate Conception, all very close to the rear center. One was Irish and Italian, the other was German, and the other Polish. And folks from all three of these communities would come. And what we realized once we started, you know, we found this thing that's it's on a brown paper bag, pencil, Sunday list is written at the top, and then it's just names and kind of cryptic numbers, like half dozen or six, and sometimes it's crossed out and there's something else written below it. Turns out, these were the regulars, and the standing orders really were in were organized by who went to what mass at what church, right? So that you would know who who you needed to give. And it was really just for Molly Rear, who was the one behind the counter, to be able to have the rolls ready and give them out. And um, I, I think that it's it's this kind of amazing idea that that hit me as I was thinking about this. We so often think and talk about 
food as a way of passing culture and passing traditions down through the generations. And that was absolutely the case, certainly, with many families in Kingston and with the Rears themselves who brought this recipe. But for these folks who were coming, right, from these very different cultures and a different religious background, the Rears roles took on something entirely new here in Kingston. And as I say, just yesterday, somebody came in and started telling me there were 10 of us in our household. So we had to make sure we got there early. We rushed out as soon as the sermon was over at church. So we would make sure we all got some of us like the bump rolls with the crunchy part on top. Some of us like the smooth rolls. Right. And so you can kind of picture all these different folks from different backgrounds coming from different churches and the rears there ready, right, for this <laughs> for this swarm of people and wondering, uh, hopefully one of the sermons will go a little long this week, so maybe it won't all be a line around the corner. That was what it was like Sundays. Right, and then people would take the food home and make it in a very non-Jewish way. <laughs> Correct, yes. This is the other story we hear again and again. Well, one thing that was fascinating was that the dads often seemed to have made the breakfast on Sunday mornings in a lot of these families. So dad would, you know, make it was the perfect size for uh, for bacon, right, for a sausage patty, these rolls. Some people would, would cut them open, slap them with butter, and they said that was exactly how I want them. Other had the kind of egg sandwich way of doing it. But everybody agreed that if you did not eat your roll when it was fresh, it would be a rock by evening. And there are great stories of families who, you know, decided to call these Willie's bullets once they got stale because Willie was the oldest brother who was the delivery man. So those kids associated them with Willie. Oh, no, they're stale. There's Willie's bullets again. Wow. This really was a family bakery and the family recipe for these legendary rolls is not anywhere, right? We have only found a very kind of cryptic half recipe um, for the rolls. So we did a project, and we kind of have an ongoing project going called the Rear Rolls Revival, where we've invited former customers to come together and share their memories of what it was like. We even did a taste test where we had a whole bunch of local bakeries in Kingston provide their roles so that the customers could kind of vote on which were more and less similar to their memory of rears. And we're so grateful that this season we've been able to partner with Rosie General, which is a brand new family run um, bakery just down the block from Rears, and they're providing rolls for visitors to get at the end so that they can leave with a bag of rolls just like you would have done in the past. And Anthony, the wonderful baker there, has been asking me questions, right? Ah, oh, could it be this way? I went in there also just yesterday and he said, I think it was scissors. I think they made the bump on the top with Aww. scissors. So we're trying to get we're trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, but this is this is a definite mystery that we have not yet cracked the recipe of the rear rolls. Right. When I was on the tour, um, one, a fellow tour person said that she had gone to the bakery and her brother had tried to get the recipe from Jaime, like tried to get it. And he had sampled all kinds. Of, he couldn't even get feedback on his own recipe that... Um, this secret. It's its amazing. It is. Think about that. You know, and we have their amazing um, coal and wood-fired oven, this 1916 behemoth that they used all the way up until, uh, up until the 80s. And we've even found letters that Jaime, who was the youngest, and he took over from his father as the baker. So Jaime would write these letters to the, the Bennett Oven Company in Battle Creek, Michigan, saying, hey, can you, do you make replacement parts for this? And they kind of were like, <laughs> We haven't made that in quite a few years, sir. 
Wow. Yeah, it's a real, it's really neat to be able to walk in and see the mixing troughs that the the initial dough used to be made in. Yeah. And then um, you could see uh, the there's, uh, I can't remember the year that the actual, the mechanical mixer. 1947. In. 1947. Uh, State of the art, 1947. Absolutely. Triumph Dough Company, another American made product there. But he, Jaime, the youngest, he was conscripted into the, the army and he served during World War II. And after the war, he had this influx of cash and was able to get this electric mixer. Um, but one of the really great stories I love is that to the point of nobody knowing the recipe, when Jaime was serving, his brother Willie had to take over and Willie was a terrible baker. And he, it, they tried, the whole family tried saying, oh, it's a new recipe. It's the white mountain rolls. But really that just meant that they were doughy and uncooked in the center. And thank goodness Jaime came back and was able to take over as baker. So the bakery lasts through some, some bad baking. Yes. Um, it lasts through some bad baking. It lasts through urban renewal, mm-hmm. which was pretty remarkable as the foot traffic. I mean, there were 427 buildings in that area that were torn down. That's their, their, their weekday foot traffic of folks who live nearby. But what they were able to do was adjust their business model. And because it was a kosher bakery, they were able to sell bulk orders to summer camps in the Catskills. And that they actually had some of their most successful years during and after urban renewal. Wow. And it was, so was Jaime the only baker in those later years and the sisters were out on the retail side? Well, no, two of the sisters helped shaping the dough. And so Jaime was the baker, the, the Gertie and Elsie helped shape the dough. Molly, who was the oldest sister, was uh, the woman behind the counter. She's the one who kept that Sunday list. And then Sadie, who ironically is the only family member we have a photo of in the, the business, she did not like to be a part of it. She really kept to the cooking and cleaning for the family upstairs in the apartment. Wow. And uh, there are no, um, they could have had cutting machines. There's um, dough dividers. And, and to think about the sisters' hands rolling, I'm sure they had it down to rolling two at a time yep. because that was a lot of rolls that they sold on Sundays. That was a lot of rolls. It was a lot of rolls. And it's really, I mean, that's my favorite artifact in the whole museum is the top of the dough trough, right? In the early years before they got that electric dough mixer, it was all reaching in and mixing it with your body strength, right, by hand. But there was a top to it that you would put on when you left the dough to rise. And on the top surface of that of that lid is where you can see the evidence of all of the years of work that those sisters put into shaping the dough and the rolls, braiding the challah. Anybody who's ever, you know, braided challah at home knows you've got some cleanup work to do when you get things stuck in any any kind of bread. But just to imagine that. And actually, you know, if, if somebody listening uh, wants to take on this challenge, right, you, we could scrape a portion of that if you think we could get the recipe from it, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I don't know uh, the science, but maybe we have, our, we have our, our scout, the flower scout on that. You never know. Yeah, yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about the non-bread things that happen. Well, before actually, before we stray from bread, there's some pretty big uh, bread exhibits coming up in the fall. Yeah, we're so excited. So opening on September 12th, which is a Monday, we're going to have a new exhibition in our front windows that really celebrates the bread cultures in Kingston today. So we're calling it um, Braiding Bread and Traditions. And we've partnered with a, a wonderful local food photographer, Aaron Resney, and a couple of bakers, Rosie General, who I'd mentioned before, who makes the delicious rye rolls we give out on our tours, um, La Misa Events, LLC, which is a Filipina chef who has made ensaymada, which are amazing, um, and also from... Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, Super Pan Hispanica Bakery in Pleasant Valley, um, some pan dulce. And this is a Guatemalan bakery. And uh, Andrea Del Cid, who we've worked with on many different projects, including our Guatemalan Worry Dolls project, which is in our front windows now, that's her family's bakery. So Erin took gorgeous photographs of these different breads. And we're going to have those photos on display, along with some really kind of powerful proverbs that we were able to find, um, kind of speaking to the significance of bread that goes to nourishing your body, yes, but also to nourishing things beyond. Um, so just to give one example of it, uh, we have a Yiddish, uh, a Yiddish proverbs here. Die Liebe ist süß, nor ist sie gut mit Bräut, which translates to love tastes sweet but only with bread. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, bread is this tangible thing that has its purpose, but it has so many metaphors. And similarly, um, you know, I mean, it can carry us lots of places. And this museum is exploiting its capacity to carry the center in many places. So tell us about the sewing exhibit. Yeah. So these themes, right, that we pull out from the story of the family, culture, community, work, and bread, those bring us all kinds of places. So right now we have an exhibition in our gallery called Sewing in Kingston that looks at the stories of the garment industry in Kingston, which was a really significant industry. It was the largest employer in the city in the 20s. Um, and folks... You know, today when you come, you see the shirt factory, the pajama factory, and there's very little information just in the landscape that tells the stories of all these thousands of people who worked there, who used these jobs in order to really get a leg up into the American economy and to build a life and, and raise their families. So the exhibition looks at both the kind of the history of the industrial sewing, but also the ways in which folks today use sewing to pass down traditions. So we have a beautiful display of um, embroidery. And um, one of them is a Oaxacan immigrant who came from Mexico not too many years ago and has been passing on this tradition of very specific patterns of embroidery onto her daughters. And she's actually going to do a workshop for the public later on in November. We're still working on nailing down the date for it, but stay tuned, rearcenter.org, R-E-H-E-R, center.org. Um, we have a, a beautiful uh, Ukrainian embroidery two blouses made by two generations of Ukrainian women 
in the same family passing on that tradition, as well as an African-American story of a woman who grew up in Kingston and did these lovely embroidery patterns on handkerchiefs. And we actually have one of her aprons on display because it was passed down in her family. And part of what I love so much is here is this piece that clearly needed mending many times over. And that was something that was done at home and something that was valued. It wasn't like, oh, let's just get rid of this. This was something that was treasured because it was handmade by, by an elder in the family. And we actually pulled out from that this idea of sustainable fashion and had a whole day dedicated to it just last week. And we had 100 Ways to Style a, a T-shirt workshop. We had a mending workshop that we partnered with the Germantown Laundromat on so that folks could bring their clothes that needed mending and would get a chance to learn the skills and do it themselves. So those are just a couple of ways that we're pulling from the story of the rears, this idea, this legacy of work um, and of culture and being able to share, you know, the immigrant stories today through those lenses. That's so great. I um, am excited to see the bread exhibit, of course, but to be near you guys and watch as all of this evolves and see what past and present um, moments and ideas you stitch together. Thank you. And we are too. And it's a, it's very much a work in progress. And that's one of the things I, I want to just put forward. Yeah. If you, if you're listening to this and you say, I'm that bread scientist, right, that we need, or, or have some idea or a way, you know, if you see a parallel between the work we're doing and, and what you do, let's, let's be in touch because as we continue to stabilize the building, which is not yet completed um, and open it up and, and continue to learn the stories and connect with our community and connect with contemporary immigrants in the area, this thing is going to keep taking shape to, to really become what it's meant to be. And one way that we're going to be doing that just this fall is through a partnership with the Ulster Literacy Association. So we're partnering with them to collect the immigrant oral histories of Ulster County. And a year from now, that will be our exhibition in our gallery space is showcasing some of the stories that we learn um, specifically connected to food. Wow, that's great. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me. And um, thank you all for joining us for Heritage Radio Network's first annual Catskills Field Day. We couldn't have done it without our partners. Special thanks to Putt-Putt Van Winkle, Edible New York, Wadler Brothers, Waffler Estate, Isolation Proof, Upward Brewing, Diamond, Black Diamond Cider, and Bread Alone. Check out more episodes of HRN on tour along with our full lineup of shows at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. HRN on tour is powered by Simplecast. This episode of HRN on tour was produced in part by generous funding from the Julia Child Foundation.